0: You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com.: So endurance by contrast. Endurance by contrast. That's, that's the phrase that I think summarizes the theme of First Timothy chapter 6 verses 11 to 16. And, and we can see it here in the combining together of two ideas. First, look at the idea in this passage of endurance. If we were to step back. And, and kind of look at what Paul is doing here, we can see that he's at the end of his letter, and he is giving the final charge to Timothy. And therefore, the imperatives in this passage ha- have a sense of urgency to them. These, these are things that Timothy must do until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's a, a high importance to what Paul is saying here. And then in verse 12, Paul says, fight the good fight of faith. And that's a loaded phrase because in 2 Timothy 4, 7, when Paul is at the end of his life, Paul looks back on his life and he says, I have fought the good fight of faith. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That's how Paul describes his own endurance in faith. And so... If the Apostle Paul describes his own endurance as I have fought the good fight, then when he commands Timothy to fight the good fight, it means he's commanding Timothy to endure, right? Endurance is a big idea in these verses. But it's not just endurance. There's also the idea of contrast. Paul starts verse 11 with, but as for you. Which means, now in contrast to what I have just said, Paul has been talking about the topic of money in verses 9 to 10. And he's going to come back to that topic in verse 17. But before Paul can even get to verse 17, he has to stop and charge Timothy to not be like those Paul describes in verse 10. Do not be like those who wander from the faith. Timothy be different. In contrast to those who have fallen away, endure. Endure by contrast to those who have fallen away. That's what's going on here in this passage. Endurance by contrast, endurance by contrast, and then Paul in this passage gives us a five-fold strategy for what this is and then how to do it, okay? There are five points here in this passage, but tonight I'm only going to mention three, all right? You guys, I had in an earlier draft of this sermon, I have five points, and it is too much, it is too long. And so this is one of those things where, I, you know, less is more. I, I'm deciding to save two points for next week. As we finish the book, and tonight, I I want us to slow down and drill into three things here that Paul is telling us, three ways in this passage that we endure by contrast, okay? That's the sermon tonight. Three ways that we endure by contrast. Number one is right here. It is know your no. Number two... Right here, fight the good fight. And then number three over here is worship God. Know your no, fight the good fight, worship God. Three ways to endure by contrast. And each of these ways, each of these three ways have a special kind of of relevance and urgency in this passage. These are things that we, as the church, as the readers of this letter, we should take these things to heart. Because Paul is writing to Timothy here, trying to help him. Paul wants to help Timothy. Paul wants to help us. He wants us to make it in the Christian life. So do I. And so let's pray, and then we'll get started. God Almighty, our Father in Christ, we thank you in this moment for your word and for its clarity. In this moment, we remember that you are not only the God who speaks, but you speak such that we can understand you. You, Father, have leaned down to us in your grace, and you have given us truth in Jesus. And so now we ask tonight with your word open, lead us by your spirit of truth in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So let's get started here with point number one know your no. And that's no, K N O W, no, your N O no. Know your no. Know. Know your know, okay. It's the first thing we see here in verse 11, which again, verse 11, puts this entire passage in contrast to what Paul has said previously. Look at verse 11 again. Look at that in your Bibles. Paul says there, verse 11, but as for you, O oh, man of God, flee these things. But as for you, which means not like the others, flee these things. Now, what does Paul have in mind here when he says these things? We'll take a look back at verses 9 and 10. We saw this last week. Verses 9 and 10, these are the, the, the people, the last people that Paul has talked about. Okay, he says in verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So flee these. Timothy. Avoid these things, which are not, in this instance, sinful actions. All right, notice that. Paul, in verses 9 and 10, has not listed out ungodly actions or trespasses like he does in other places. For example, in Galatians 5, Paul lays out a whole list of sins that he calls works of the flesh is Galatians five verses nineteen and following he, he lists out in that passage sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. these are things that you do these in Galatians five are sins of practice. They are sins that have an outward orientation. But here in 1 Timothy 6, when Paul talks about sin, he doesn't talk about outward acts, but instead he talks about inward desires. He mentions three things in verses 9 and 10. The desire to be rich, the love of money. And then he uses this word, craving. Each of these, desire, love, craving, each of these are inward, invisible longings. They are sins at the level of desire, and it's through them that some have wandered away from the faith. So we need to get this here. Paul doesn't just want Timothy to flee from sin. He wants Timothy to flee from sinful desires that lead to sin. And this is a game changer for us. It means that our battle against sin doesn't just happen out here with our hands and our feet and our mouths, but the battle happens in here. The battle happens in our hearts. And this is where you need to know your no. When we turn from our sin, and trust in Jesus, we are not just saying no to certain behaviors, but we are saying no to certain desires. You see, I think that one of the problems with the church in America is that you have many Christians who, for the most part, don't want to sin, but who still desire everything that the world desires. We want to avoid certain behaviors, right? But when you look on the inside, we have the same cravings as those who reject the gospel. That's the problem. The focus here, the focus really gets down to what you really want in life, desire is always connected to an object, desire always has some goal in mind. One way to say it is that everybody has some vision of the good life, and whatever that vision is of the good life, that is what you will desire. We all have this. We all have this desire. We all desire the good life. Every Christian wants the good life. But our problem is that for many of us, our vision of the good life doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from Instagram. Our vision of the good life is not shaped by Scripture. It's formed by Facebook. If we're honest, much of what we want for our lives, this is just be honest here, think about this. If we're honest... Much of what we want for our lives is the same thing people who are going to hell want for their lives. And so no wonder why some wonder from the faith. We want the same things that people who don't believe want. We have the same cravings as people who reject the gospel. And a big part of this, I think, a big part, I think, is how the church at large, I'm, no, I'm, I'm talking church at large, I think, it's, I think it's how we've come to treat the Bible. And this is a change that has happened in our country in, in the late 20th century. Um, some have written about this at the historical level, but basically this is what happened. The Bible lost its, its place of prominence in the everyday life of Christians. But here's, here's the thing. It wasn't that droves of Christians stopped believing the Bible, but it's that the Bible's influence became regulated. People began to treat the Bible more like self-help wisdom and not as an actual vision for life. And this is, this is still very much in the air of our society. We, we breathe this in all the time. Many think about the Bible like like it's a convenient resource, but not as an authority for how we live. We come to it from time to time when we want a little nugget, right? We want a little little encouragement, a little pick-me-up for the day. But we don't orient to Scripture like it's the authority for everything we do, for every way that we think. We tend to give lip service to the Bible's value, but we don't let the Bible actually shape the way we see the world. Everything about the world. We have regulated the influence of scripture. I cannot tell you enough how important this is. I want so badly for our church. I want so badly for us to see reality Through the eyes of Scripture. I want us to be shaped by Scripture, not by society. And this is a paradigm shift. If you think that you already see reality through Scripture, you probably don't. I was convicted, this is not, I'm going off the manuscript. I was convicted about this on vacation in March. Sitting outside, I'm reading. And there was a breeze that came through, a, 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 a March, you know, North Carolina breeze, and it just came through. And in and, and I and I thought about it after it passed. I've been so wired to think that the sun shines and the, the wind blows and the trees, all of that. That's just kind of what happens in on planet Earth, and that's the problem. See, this is not a planet. This is creation. See, that's not just, that's creation out there. So the breeze is not just a breeze. God makes the wind blow. God makes the sunshine. God makes the trees grow. All of that is God. And yet we don't, we don't think about the world that way. We should be stunned all the time if we orient to this world through the eyes of scripture. And it's a paradigm shift. Like we, we have to change the way we think, the way we see. It means, this is what it means in terms of, this is a change for us. It means that we stop trying to figure out how to fit the Bible into our world. And instead we ask, how does this world line up with the Bible? That's the way we ask the question. The question is not on the word of God. The question is on everything else. If we read something in the Bible that doesn't make sense, it's our problem, not the Bible's. We are so tempted to think that when we don't understand things in Scripture that it must not be that important, right? We filter everything through our capacity to understand based upon our Western framework, the way that we've been wired to see reality. No, I'm just saying no. We want to be so shaped by Scripture that we are seeing everything through the lens of the word of God, okay? And this is a fork in the road kind of decision. And it's the sort of thing that we have to do over and over and over again. The fork always in the road. It reminds me a little bit of like in, in Joshua 24. You guys know the history of Israel uh, when, when uh, Joshua had, had led the people into the promised land. God had given them the land he promised to Abraham. And in chapter 24, as the people had settled in the land, Joshua is reminding Israel about God's past faithfulness. He's reminding them how good God has been to them, and he he calls all of Israel, trust in Yahweh, trust in God. He says, Israel, put away your idols. Stop worshiping and serving all of these false gods. Stop looking to all of these wrong ideas of the good life. And then Joshua, in chapter 24, Four, verse 15, he, he puts the fork in the road and he says to Israel, choose, choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me in my house, but as for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. But as for me, says Joshua, but as for you, Paul says to Timothy, but as for us, church, We will serve the Lord. We want what God wants. We we will not desire what the world desires. It happens here, right here. It happens here. We will not desire what the world desires. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of possessions. We will flee these things. We will avoid these things. We will know our no. That's endurance by contrast. That's how we endure by contrast. And, of course, there's a whole positive side of this in The second half of verse 11. It's not just that we flee, but we also pursue. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. In other words, pursue Christ's likeness This is the part I cut. I'll say more about this next week. Here's the second point. How do we endure by contrast? Number two. Fight the good fight. Verse 12. Verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. And fight is both the verb and the noun. Right? It's an action and a thing. People fight in fights. And it's a good idea before you have to fight to know that you're actually in a fight. Right? Right? I know we got some former fighters in here, Pastor Nick. Where's Pastor Nick? He used to be a bit of a brawler, I right hear. I don't know how many of you guys have been in fights before. I, I, I um, I don't know if that's your story. Love to talk if it is. Um, but have have any of you? Don't raise your hand. But have you ever been in a fight and you you didn't know it? Like you were in a fight you didn't know about. Okay, I have. I'll be honest. I'll be straight with you here. I have never thrown a punch in my life. I pushed a kid down one time, playing in the woods. A uh, bunch of kids together, It was not, but it was not a fight. i I throw, never thrown a punch. I've never been in a fight except, except almost, almost one time in high school. All right? I was 15. It was after a high school basketball game. And uh, it was one night a big, big group of kids. We would do this after games. A big group of kids, classmates, mostly friends. Uh, we would go after the games for dinner at El Charo's, which was like the be- the best Mexican restaurant in the little town. Uh, it was connected to a day's Inn, and uh, it was the best best place to get good, good Mexican food. And that's where we all were going um, after after the game. But apparently during the game, like while I was watching the game and cheering and stuff like that, there was one guy in the crowd, sitting you know some rows behind me, who found out that I I had talked to this one girl. Okay, and I'm not going to bore you with the details here. But the guy was mad that I had talked to this girl, and um, which was I it was, it was just just friends, just talking, right? And he was upset, and um, he he basically during the game he was premeditating a fight with me at El Charos, and. All of these people were getting in on this plan, and I had no clue as I'm watching the basketball game. And So later that night after the game, um, we all headed down the road, um, and my sister and I pulled into the parking lot of El Charro's, and in the parking lot under the lights, um, there was this circle of kids. But, you know, anytime you see a bunch of kids in a circle in a parking lot, it's probably not a good, a good thing. That's what this was. A bunch of kids in a parking lot, and we came in. They're all circling in a circle, and they're amped up. Like, there was one guy who was, who was mad at me I didn't know about. He's in the middle of this circle of kids, and he's, like, you know, beating his chest and yelling and stuff like that. And, it, you know, it looked very interesting. And so my sister and I, we pull in, and before she even parks the car, like, I jump out of this, like, moving car, and i go sprinting toward this circle of kids because i just want to know what's going on and as i'm like running to this circle of kids i'm not i'm not kidding you as i got closer no joke like all of a sudden it went just like deathly silent and like it's like the seas parted like all of these kids like just opened up and i was like ushered into the middle of this circle of high school kids and this circle like enclosed around me and I'm standing in the circle of these kids and the guy in front of me is angry and I find out in that moment he's angry at me (laughs) and I and I remember being like hey buddy listen I'm trying to diffuse the situation Buddy, I don't, know what you're, I don't know what's going on. I, I tried to reason with him, and we were able, by God's grace, to work it out. We were able to work it out. Here's the deal, though. I found myself in the middle of a fight I didn't even know I was in. And that's the same problem some of you have when it comes to the Christian life. The Apostle Paul calls the Christian life the good fight of faith. The fight of faith. Faith, that is, faith is a fight. This whole thing, this thing you're doing is a fight. Did you think it was a cruise? Did you think it was a nice stroll? It's a fight. That's why it's not easy. And if Paul's metaphor here is a boxing match, I think it is, it makes sense, right? Because in a boxing match, you cannot win unless you last. Which means if you want to last, you have to stay on your feet. And it's not easy to stay on your feet when the world, the flesh, and the devil are swinging at you. How? How do you endure? How do we make it? How do we stand? Well, I think Paul's second imperative here in verse 12 explains how. Notice verse 12. After Paul says, fight the good fight of faith, he says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Take hold is a command. It's an imperative, just like The word fight. It is Paul, again, telling Timothy something he should do. And so we should ask, how are these two commands connected? Fight and take hold. How are these two commands connected together? Well, I think the second command is extending the first. Take hold or seize is explaining how to fight. We fight the fight of faith by seizing, by taking hold of the eternal life that is our future. And this is the mechanics of faith. It it means we embrace the things hoped for. We have a deep conviction about things that are presently unseen, but that one day will be seen. And although they are not seen right now, they are no less real, and so we grip them. We, We take we take our future reality and we bring it to bear on the here and now. We seize the assurance of our eternal life and we apply it to our present life. Is actually the exact opposite of carpe diem. You guys know carpe diem, seize the day. Well, the whole ideology behind seize the day is that the day is all you have. Carpe diem, because tomorrow we die and it's all over. Carpe diem is a pagan slogan. But for the Christian, for the Christian, it's not seize the day, but it's actually seize tomorrow. That's what Paul is saying here. Fight the good fight of faith by seizing tomorrow. Fight the good fight of faith now by seizing the eternal life that is yours, the eternal life that you have in Jesus, the eternal life to which you have been called. It's not simply that the things we do in the present will impact our future, but it's that our future, the future that God has promised us, should impact our present. There's a shift in the way we think, Christian. This world is not your home. The life you have in Jesus will last forever. So lay hold of that, of that life now to fight the good fight of faith. That's endurance by contrast. Endurance by contrast. Fight the good fight of faith by laying hold of your future in Christ. And here's the third point, okay? Worship God. How do we endure by contrast? How do we endure, Paul? He tells us, know your no, fight the good fight, and then here, third, worship God this is in verses 15 and 16 and it starts though in verses 13 and 14 notice there that Paul charges Timothy to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach when he says commandment he means overall i think the way of Jesus you guys remember in the book of acts that the church in the book of acts was called the way the way was was shorthand for the entire christian system it's basically all of life under the lordship of Jesus. When Jesus says in the Great Commission, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you, I think that's what Paul has in mind here. The commandment is essentially following Jesus as your Lord. That commandment. Keep that commandment unstained and free from reproach. But notice that command is temporary. Look at verse 14. Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. This means faith will not always be a fight because one day, Christian, faith will be sight. One day, Jesus will return. And Paul actually tells us when in these verses. It will happen at the proper time. And I love that phrase. The return of Jesus, his appearing will be displayed exactly when he chooses. And the he, in verse 15, is God the Father. And at this point in the passage, Paul just takes us to the heights here. He just takes us to the heights. He, God the Father, is he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and dominion forever. Amen. Paul is so overcome with the reality of God that he just takes off in worship. He's not making an argument here. Paul is not giving Timothy another charge. He's just doing what you do when you remember who God is and what this is all about. Paul is not telling Timothy what to do here. He is showing Timothy, Timothy, worship worship God like this. Do you, church, want to know how to endure to the end? Do you want to know how endurance, by contrast, happens? Always keep God at the center. Remember God. Be amazed by God. Live in the realness of God and do now what you were created to do forever. Worship God. God and God, of course, is the triune God, He is Yahweh, the God of Israel, the maker of heaven and earth. He is the God who is one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. And here in verses 15 and 16, Paul focuses on the first person of the Trinity, God the Father. He is the blessed and only sovereign. And that word blessed is the same word used in chapter 1, verse 11, which means happy. God, remember, is a happy God. God is essentially glad in his Trinitarian fellowship. He is joyful down to the depths of his heart. And in fact, God is overflowing with delight, and he is sovereign. Which means that the God of ultimate and highest gladness is also the God of ultimate and highest power. He is over every king and every lord. There is no one who ranks higher than him because there is no one greater than him. Nothing can go over his head. Nothing can slip under his eyes. God is sovereign. And he alone has immortality which means that our greatest enemy is no match for him. Death cannot touch him, God is completely indestructible and he dwells in unapproachable light, which means he is not known unless he makes himself known. No one discovers God. In fact, no one has ever seen God. No one can ever see God. God the Father who is spirit is outside our imagination and so beyond our wildest dreams that we could not fathom him. Our minds could not conceive him. God is bigger than us and we need to remember that, and when we do, it leads us to worship. God. God. We worship God to this God, to the God who is greater than that which we can imagine. This God deserves all the honor. To this God be all honor and eternal dominion. So, God Almighty, we worship you. As your people, we worship you. Church, worship God. Endurance, by contrast, means we worship God. And it means that we don't just worship God when we feel like it. Look, We we are emotional beings, and emotions matter. Emotions impact the condition of our hearts, but they do not determine the praiseworthiness of God. Whether we feel it or not, whether things are clear or clouded, we can worship God because of who he is. Sometimes we can think that once we get through our struggles, then we'll praise God. We can imagine that our worship will happen on the other side of our hardship, but actually worship is how you get through the hardship. We worship God not just after we endure, but it's how we endure. And that means we must be stubborn in our singing. You might be in prison. You might be locked in prison. It might be midnight. It might be dark. Everything might be dark. What do we do when we find ourselves there? We sing. We sing. We worship God, we sing until the earth shakes. We sing until the walls fall down. We worship God. How will you make it, Christian? How will you make it? Worship Him. Worship God. Endurance by contrast. Worship God. And here's the thing. It's important for us to see here in this passage, this is the last thing. It's important for us to see. My time is all messed up today. I'm sorry. I think I'm going long. My time is all weird. (laughs) Here's the thing. What brings Paul to this point, this crescendo? What brings him here goes back to verse 14, 14. It's the return of Jesus. When Paul mentions the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, at that point, he just gets carried away. It's the fact. I think this is what it is. It's the fact for Paul. That he and Timothy and us, we're going to see Jesus one day. So the God who is unseen is the God who has made himself seen in Jesus. No one has ever seen or can see God the Father. But many have seen Jesus who is God the Son and one day, He will be seen again. That's not theory. That is a real event that will happen in this world. This world, right? This world. This is an event that will happen. Jesus Christ is coming back here and Christian. Listen, look, you're gonna see him. You're gonna see his face. You're gonna you're gonna look at his face. One of the things that I like to do here in this space as we're singing is that sometimes I look up there, that stained glass window, the circle one in the middle. You guys see that? Just look right there. You guys I can't see it. You guys see it? The very middle? And I look at that image of Jesus, who is a real person. Jesus is a real person. And so I look at that image of him. And sometimes when we when we when we sing, like we sang this earlier. It's just and with the ransom and glory, his face I at last shall see. As we're singing lyrics like that, I look, I look up there, and I look into his face. Yeah, I see his face? I don't know that his, I don't know that his face looks like that. We don't know that. but I know he has a face. Jesus has a face. And Christian, you're going to see it. You will see the face of Jesus. He's coming back and you will see him. And so when we worship God, we worship God in this hope. We worship God in the hope that one day we will see the face of Jesus, and that is how we endure. Come come what may, bring it. (laughs) I'm going to see his face, right? Endurance by contrast, we will see the face of Jesus, and so we worship God. We know our no, we fight the good fight, we worship God. With all of our lives, we worship him, And then each Sunday as we gather in this space, we worship him. And in this moment, as we're gathered for worship, we come to this table. And at this table, as we take the bread and as we take the cup, we remember the death of Jesus for us. And this is what Paul says about the table. As we take the bread and take the cup, as we remember the death of Jesus, Paul says we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. So we drink remembering and we drink in hope, looking forward to the day when we will indeed see his face. And so tonight, if that's your hope, if you're going to see him, if you're going to see him, if you trust in him, we invite you to eat and drink with us. We're going to serve the bread first. Just hold the bread. I'll uh, come back up. We'll all eat it together. Uh, His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.